Here in the beginning of Romans, Paul lays out for us God's perspective on sin, sinners, those of us in fallen humanity. We'll explore Romans chapter 2 today as we continue our series, Man's Need of Divine Righteousness. Truth for Today with Pastor Phil Howard, coming up next. If you were to focus only on Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, you'd come away with the idea that God is pretty angry, judgmental, and not letting anyone slide. And indeed, He is angry with sin. Fact is, sin is found in each and every one of us. And today, we take a look at the judge who will judge the judgmental. We're in chapter 2 of Romans, verses 1 through 16. That's where we catch up with our teacher and pastor, Phil Howard, here this morning on Truth For Today from Valley Bible Church here in Hercules. Join us, won't you? Here's Pastor Phil. We're in Romans trying to do a panoramic view, and let me give you a a sweep. I'm taking this to chapter 2, but I want you to understand where this book is going. The first 15 verses is the introduction to the book. 15 verses. The theme of the book is verse 16 and 17. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. A gift of righteousness. How I could be right with God through no merit of my own, but simply through the Lord Jesus and the gospel, the good news about him. Now, before he decides to develop that good news, he uh, does something. He begins in verse 18 by saying, This world needs good news because right now it's abiding beneath the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God that is basically saying his judgment on a world of sinners is to lift the restraints and give them more sin. More sin than they can keep up with. The judgment on sin is more sin. You like sin? I'm going to let you sin in ways you never thought you could. And I'm going to let you throw me out of my own universe. I'm going to let you fire me as God and let you see what happens when you replace me. You'll replace me with snakes, idols of stone, four-footed beasts, and you will worship creatures because you have fired the Creator. And so he says from 118 to chapter 320, God is describing why he's angry with the race. Now, I want to say something in just introduction here before we begin chapter 2. And we're going to look at five standards of divine judgment by which God will judge every man and woman who comes to the white throne judgment. Let me say this. Today, we have to defend the very fact of the wrath of God because we have created a sentimental Santa Claus that you've got to love me. You've got to love me. You're God, and the God I believe, I'm not a part of this God movement that God judges sin because we don't even know what sin is because, you see, we're postmodern, and nobody can define what's right or wrong, so God can't even judge me because we don't know anything. You don't know anything. God hasn't lost his sanity. He knows everything, and he is 
the one that will be at the judge. You don't talk judgment today. That is hellfire brimstone. No, I think the Lord Jesus himself knew more about hell and said more about it than any of us preachers in this place. And he's the only one that can keep you from going. He's the only one. And so when we come to wrath, you have to defend God's character. Let me tell you something about wrath. Wrath is not eternal. It's not an attribute of God. It has an, there never was any wrath in the Trinity. The only time wrath has ever come on the earth is when men begin to sin. And God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, and that day he killed them. They died spiritually towards him. And this God, part of his holiness, because he hates sin, hates anything unlike himself, wrath is an aspect of the holiness of God. Now, you cannot dice up God and take the attributes you like and excise the ones you don't like. I like his love. I don't like his holiness. You cannot create your own God without going to a crisis eternity. The God of the Bible, whether you like him or not, is as holy as he is loving. And you want to know where the wrath of God was expressed the greatest in history? At the cross. God poured out wrath on a perfect lamb. You want to find out where the greatest manifestation of love was ever demonstrated? The cross. Conundrum? Contradiction? I don't know about that. But both things happened on crucifixion day. The wrath of God was poured out on an innocent, perfect lamb. And yet the love of God was unleashed like a mighty dam upon the world. They both met at the cross so that righteousness and mercy kissed each other at Calvary. They both were there. And so here we come and we ask, here's the big Big thing, two things. A pop psychology book came out some years ago, and it went this way. I'm okay, and you're okay. Paul's thesis is, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. Because this is the standard by which he's going to judge us. Another pop thing that we get, you must preach devout needs. People want a good marriage. They want immaculately conceived kids. They want to prosper. They want nice fun. You've got to preach to where they feel it. They feel it. I want to ask you this question. If you were a passenger on the Titanic, what was your felt need on the night of the crash? Refill my martini glass, please. Oh, and by the way, on that filet, I want that medium well. And my cabinet wasn't cleaned. I feel needs on the deck of this thing. You know what? That's your felt need, but your real need is you're going to need a lifeboat. Your real need is you're headed for tragedy in the unsinkable Titanic. What your real need is and what the gospel says. Now hear me. Don't ever say you preach the gospel until you tell a man of the wrath of God. 
This is exactly Paul is the greatest evangelist unto the Gentile world. I'm first going to tell you about the divine wrath that's due a race that's in rebellion. I'll get to the good news, but let me tell you why God can justly, without any regret, at the white throne judgment, sentence billions to hell. Because, because of the outrage expressed in Romans chapter 1, Cinerama, Chapter 1, 2, and 3. We get to the good news in 3. Hold on. I may empty the church before we get there, but that's all right. It's not my obligation to fill the church, is it? You're supposed to fill it because you want to get sinners here to be saved, right? Thank you, pastors. We pay them to say right. The rest of you wake up. Look at this. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And you may give it the word reality to help you. Based truth is reality. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them... And yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Our first indictment here, God is going to judge men and women based upon what they practice, not based upon who they criticize. The argument with most scholars today say this begins the Jewish critique. That right here he's beginning to deal with the Jewish problem that looked in chapter 1 and said, I don't live like these Gentiles. I'm not a homosexual. I don't worship beasts. I don't worship other idols. And they think he's beginning to deal with the self-righteous Jew. This is the majority view. I think something he touches on for sure is the moralistic self-righteous. The only one I could think of being that way as a whole would be the Jewish person of this century watching the decadence and the hubris of the Gentile world. But it really comes down to maybe anyone who has this self-righteous, I don't do what they do. I'm not that kind of a sinner. I don't do that stuff. I don't do that sin. Why, this is, even Seneca, the great ethical moralist of Greece, was outraged at the sins described in chapter 1. He was a moralist, yet he helped get the king's mother killed. Great ethical teacher until it came time to knock off somebody. He was outraged, and you can be outraged by the moral behavior, said, I thank God I don't do that. Watch out. You do the same kinds of acts in the sight of God because if you break the least commandment, you're guilty of all the commandments. And what do we always go after? Basically, uh, of course, murder is terrible. Uh, any kind of moral misbehavior, unfaithfulness in marriage and, and all those categories and we can be outraged and sometimes act as though we're never guilty. And he said, beware, you practice the same kinds of things and God will judge you according to what you've done, not by your self-righteous criticism. I'm amazed in Luke 18 that when two men went up to the temple to pray, 
One is bragging that they tithe on everything in their house, including their spice rack. And they keep the Sabbath. And they're stringing out all their merit. And another man cannot even lift his head, but has his head bowed in shame. And all he can say is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, who do you think went home justified? The man that did all the tithing and all the religious works or the man who said, I need mercy. The man that went home right with God is the man who cast himself on the mercies of God. And he's saying here, watch out, you that are being critical of this chapter one and all these sins. They're outrageous. But you commit the same kinds of sins. Let me tell you the two greatest sins in the Bible. You want to write these down. These are the two greatest sins. You want to watch. And watch. This is it. The first greatest sin you could ever commit is not to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. This is the first commandment. Your greatest sin is when you're not loving God like you should. And the second greatest sin is when you're not loving people like you should. Don't talk to me about adultery, fornication, thieving, killing. The two greatest sins, and even Christians fall out of love with God. Ephesus did. Even Christians like to say, one person said, I love God, I just can't stand people. Every once in a while, I'll meet a Christian that says, man, Jesus is wonderful. I just can't stand his people. You know what? You don't have the ability to love people unless you yield your life to God because people aren't lovely in themselves. They can get on your nerves. They can bother you. And yet God has called us to be dispensers of the love of God. I often think of this verse when there's been times I've been uh, embarrassed that someone has passed me on the highway speeding with a fist on the bumper or I go to a Valley Bible Church sticker. And what bothers me is they passed me while I was doing 70 miles an hour. And, when they, and what really bothered me, I was hoping they would drive in at First Baptist because I said, you know, those Baptist folks don't practice the Bible. <laughs> but then they drive into our parking lot and they meet me out here. Hello, Pastor. I said, Pastor, were you the one telling me off? Yeah, when you cut me off, I did. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing he's taking on here. You can get all judgmental and someone passes you and you say, man, how outrageous. I hope they're not a Christian. And then you have a... Uh, I have two things in my life, a conscience and a wife. And if she had Dave Smith's phone number, she'd call him every time I break the speed limit. How can you, being a Christian, do this? I said, my conscience is hardened. The only thing that softens it is a ticket. But this is the attitude he's taking on. You're being judgmental, judgmental, judgmental. He said, be, be, be careful. I'm going to judge you for what you've done yourself. The second thing he's going to judge men and women for, the white throne judgment, he's going to judge them for the way they responded to the kindness of God. Verse 4 and 5. How did you respond to God's kindness? Look what he says. Uh, he tells them, you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, 
tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Well, why didn't you repent? When God's kind, surely you would reciprocate. Surely the kindness of God would move you to flee those things that offend him. And so this is the reason why you didn't respond to his kindness, because your heart is stubborn and your heart refused to repent. And you are storing up, and that word storing up is the Greek word to treasure. It, it's used of storing what's precious, but he uses it as a pun. You're treasuring up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The scariest thing that will come up, I believe, at the white throne judgment is how sinners spurned the grace, kindness, and mercy of God. That will be the greatest offense. And God said, I was long suffering with you. And Peter says, they mock at God. You Christians keep saying he's coming back. That's a joke. My grandma used to say that. My this ones used to say, I've been hearing that baloney for years. And Peter says, they don't understand that God is not slow to keep a promise, that God's not an old, anemic old man that is forgot, but he's delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed that he might be kind to a rebellious race, that he's holding back. He's not a slack promise keeper, but he said, my mercies have held me back. Angels may have said, you need to pour out judgment. They blaspheme your name. They reject your son. They dishonor their parents. The race has gone wild. And God just says, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. In 2,000 years of long suffering, tolerance, and patience, and yet, and yet, and yet, some can live 80 years and never want the kindness of God. You will not get me to repent. And when he pours out his wrath in the tribulation, Revelation 14 says, for all the pain they endured, they refused to repent. See, men are so capable of stubbornness that neither kindness nor wrath can move them. And God says, I will judge you on that day, and I will begin to enumerate the mercies of God. I remember the story of a Texas man who lived out of Amarillo, had twin daughters, and his wife was a devoted Christian. And he was a, uh, he was a blasphemous, uh, wretched, behaving man, wealthy in the community, but no time for God nor church. One day, he's driving his pickup, doing his rounds in his property, and he heard over the news about a fire that had broke out in a local grammar school. Uh, he thought, what, where, where? And he happened to drive up to a school that had burned to the ground and happened to burn up his twin daughters. The pastor had been to that home many times, and that uh, that wealthy man had put him out and said, don't talk to me about God nor religion. I have no time for this stuff. This is my wife's thing. Don't bother me about it. 
This day, when the pastor came, and by the time he came, as they used to do in the olden days, there was two coffins in the house. They didn't keep it at the funeral home. They were in the house, in the parlor. And the pastor worked his way in there. And the man, of course, was broken, and they finally were able to talk. And the man finally said, let me tell you, sir, God's been trying to talk to me for many a year, but I never knew he wanted me this bad. I never knew he would stoop to take the apple of my eye to get me to hear the gospel. I had no time for this nonsense, but God has finally robbed the most precious things I possess. I've got time to listen. And yet, some would not even be moved. They would use that to say, if there is a God, I don't want him. More people through suffering have become atheists than necessarily turn to God. But pain has brought many to God. And he said, I want to be kind so I can change your mind. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to judge you. I don't want you to perish. I'm holding out judgment. I'm holding out, but if you die without ever responding, if your stubborn heart wins the day, when you stand before me, I'm going to rehearse to you my kindness. How many days I kept you on the earth? How many sermons you heard? God gave you a praying mother, grandmother, hopefully some loved one. I'm going to rehearse all my kindness. I gave you seasons. I gave you food. I gave you breath. I gave you health. I gave, I gave, and gave. And in return, you hardened your heart. And no matter how long I stretched out my arm, you said, I'm not interested. He said, that will come up in my judgment. I'm going to hold you accountable for my kindness. Verses 6 through 11 is a difficult passage. Some thinks in this passage you're saved by works. Listen to what he says. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Sounds like you earn it, doesn't it? You hear that? If you persist, if you do good, you'll gain eternal life. He said, ah, you're saved by works. But for those who are self-seeking and who believe the truth, or rather who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. What is he saying? God is going to judge the human race for what it believes and for how it behaves. We're in a day there's no accountability for behavior. You do people, young people are doing things today that keeps shocking the older generation. Because it's not that there wasn't sin back there, but now it's so open. It's on MTV. It's in your face all over. The weird folks are the folks that are normal. 
And this is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church here in Hercules. Our series called Man's Need of Divine Righteousness. We're here in the early chapters of the book of Romans as we learn from God's Word just how amazing His divine grace and righteousness really is. As we close out our time together today, we thank you for spending time with us, and we look forward to the mornings ahead as we come to you on a day-by-day basis here on KFAX. It's a delight to be back with you on a daily basis, especially as we wake up together to face a new day in God's grace. If you would like a copy of today's program or the series, Today's Message Was Taken From, feel free to contact us at 855 833 9864. Again, you can reach us at 855-833-9864. You can also write to us at 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278. That's here in Hercules. The zip code is 94547. As always, you're welcome to stop by our website, valleybible.org. We have a lot of resource materials available there, information about us and who we are. In fact, if you would like to find out about our service times and our location, it's all found there at valleybible.org. If you would like to be a TFT sustainer, as always, we'd love to hear from you. This broadcast is available here on KFAX Daily in part through your financial partnership with us. As a TFT sustainer, you'll receive quarterly newsletters, a once-a-year special gift, and you'll also have access to Take a Break. It's the weekly video devotional with Pastor Phil Howard. And again, that's for our TFT sustainers. Contact us today and find out more, won't you? 855-833-9864 is our phone number. Or simply swing by our Facebook page. While you're at Facebook, simply search Truth For Today Radio. That's Truth For Today Radio. And become a friend and tell others about us, won't you? And then come back and join us next time for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Truth For Today.